When you think of tarot cards, do you picture a fortune teller predicting your untimely end in a darkened room? Or do you think they're evil? Thankfully, as you'll soon discover, the former is unlikely and the latter is simply wrong. So let's investigate the history and folklore of this much maligned form of divination in this week's episode of Fabulous Folklore. Hello there and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult and just a bit weird. I'm your host, Icy Sedgwick, blogger, fantasy author and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Well, hello there and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. You may be able to tell that my voice isn't quite what it was. Basically, as I record this, it's the 28th of February and I've spent all week feeling really rather rotten with some kind of peculiar flu bug, which has now gone onto my chest and no, it's not coronavirus. But basically, it's left me sounding like this. But you know what? We will soldier on, we will push through. We still have a folklore podcast to make and that's the most important thing. Now, this week we are continuing with March's fortune-telling theme. Last week we looked at the Roman goddess Fortuna. This week we're going to have a look at tarot cards. And I chose tarot cards because they're a really popular form of divination. And let's be honest, divination is essentially just a practice wherein you try to work out what may or may not happen in the future. And you can use them to decide on a course of action. You can basically figure out a different perspective on things and... I read tarot cards, as you might have gathered, and to be honest with you, I don't think they do predict the future, and I don't necessarily buy into some ideas of the people saying, oh, they let you know what could happen if you continue on this particular path. I use them as perspectives. So I might ask a question, sort of like, what do I need to know about this situation? And then I might get a particular card, and it makes me look at it from a different vantage point than I might have otherwise. So I see them quite valuable for that reason. I should also point out my new favourite deck is the Commonplace Tarot by Nal Latnema from our very own Folklore Thursday community. I will pop a link in the show notes below if you are looking for any good tarot cards. They are brilliant. And my other favourite deck is the Influence of the Angels and that's just because it's ridiculously spot on. But anyway, let's have a look at the history and folklore of tarot cards. One of the problems that you have with tarot is the number of myths about its origins. There are claims that playing cards actually originated from tarot cards, but there is very little evidence to actually support this assumption. And playing cards are largely believed to have reached Europe in around about 1370, where artists then updated the otherwise Arabic designs. And there is documentary evidence to support this in the form of bans on playing cards in the 1370s. So why would you ban something that didn't exist? So it's fairly good documentary evidence that playing cards were already in Europe by that time. We are going to have an episode on playing cards at the end of the month. So that's basically about as much as I want to say about playing cards specifically. But there is evidence that tarot cards were themselves a form of playing card and they were used for the game of Triumphi or Triumph. And much like regular playing cards, these Triumphi decks contained four suits and court cards. And the court cards in this case were a page, a knight, a queen and a king. Obviously in regular playing cards, I see a jackie, queen and a king. And these suits are now known as the minor arcana and they usually take the form of either pentacles or coins is one suit Wands or batons is another suit. 
cups or chalices is the third and then swords is the fourth and obviously they do correlate to diamonds, clubs, spades and hearts. The crucial difference though between ordinary playing cards and tarot cards are the 22 picture cards and nowadays these are known as the major arcana and they begin with the fool which at card zero is sometimes called the unnumbered card and then the major arcana basically follows a bit of a story arc through to the final card which is the world and it's always nice to see the world pop up in pretty much any spread. Now Liz Dean explains that tarot cards may have started life in 1392 after Charles VI of France commissioned a painter to create packs of decorated cards. Other people theorise that they were created as like a series of almost family portraits and they, they, they come from there. And other origin theories place the creation of tarot cards in northern Italy, usually Milan or Ferrara in the 15th century. And the famous Visconti Forza deck dates to around about 1441, so you will notice much later than the playing cards of 1370. And people use these triumphy decks to play Triumph, which is basically a card game with similarities to Bridge. And I would absolutely love to see if anyone has any rules for triumphy anywhere, because it would be quite good to have a go. Now, during the early 1500s, the word triumphy disappears and the cards get their new name, Tarocci. And this game travelled to other parts of Europe. And then in 1736, Chausson of Marseille created a new deck, which became a prototype for the later Tarot de Marseille decks. And there are images of these on the blog post that I wrote about this for Folklore Thursday. So the link for that is in the show notes below. Now, it took occultists until the 1780s to discover tarot cards and the use of tarot for divination is often attributed to Antoine Cord de Gebelin. And I do apologise for my mangling of French pronunciation, but if you've listened to any of my podcasts before, you'll know that there are certain languages just don't really sit well with my particular way of speaking. But anyway, I try my best. But it's at this point in the 1780s, that all of a sudden these links between tarot and ancient Egypt seem to arise. And there's no evidence whatsoever to support this claim. But some writers believe that they're what's left of the only book to survive the burning of the Library of Alexandria. Now, Jean-Baptiste Alliette published the first how-to manual for tarot with this spectacular title of How to Entertain Oneself with a Pack of Cards Called Tarot. And this book then continues this story linking the cards with ancient Egypt. And it's actually worrying how many people I see repeating this particular claim again, despite the total lack of evidence and saying, yes, 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 tarot cards, you know, the date all the way back to ancient Egypt. No, stop sharing that particular claim. They don't. Anyway, six years later, Aliette released the first deck that then explicitly linked the tarot with hermetic teachings. And the reason why they became so popular for occultists is the pictures on the trump card. So that's things like the fool or the lovers or the mage or the chariot. They take on greater symbolism than just simply being images for use in a game. And it was the symbolism in those images that then meant people could read them. And in a lot of ways, this jump from game to divination tool just reflects the move that we'd see later in the Victorian period of the Ouija board from parlour game to favourite device of the horror writer. But anyway, there were a couple of other origin theories I wanted to cover just before we then get on to the basically the birth of the modern deck. And that's people think that 13th century alchemists created tarot cards to preserve their knowledge. Uh, no. 
And one theory even connects them to the Knights Templar, because let's be honest, if you're going to have anything occult, you have to have a link to the Knights Templar. Thank you, Dan Brown. But anyway, the truth is far more prosaic, and in the mid-19th century, occult writer Elphias Levi started drawing associations between these former playing cards and other esoteric systems. So he was then linking tarot to Kabbalah, astrology, planetary correspondences, and he then drew tarot into a newly formed magical tradition that was basically only really put together in this mid-19th century period. And notorious occultist Alistair Crowley created his own deck in 1944, which then continued to add to the mystery, which, quite frankly, is not bad for a game that started out in Renaissance Italy. Now, this is where we're going to then come back to the cards as you'll find them sort of today. And in the early 20th century, British occultist Arthur Edward Waite disagreed with a lot of these supposed links between the tarot cards and ancient systems. And he's an occultist and he's saying this. But he couldn't deny that the images held a lot of potential. And to be honest with you, humans love decoding things. They love reading stuff into things. And if you've ever done an art history degree, as I have, you get taught precisely how to read symbolism in images. And it is amazing how much you can get out of a single image that would take reams and reams and reams of description verbally to get across. But anyway... Waite teamed up with artist Pamela Coleman-Smith and they then together created the Rider-Waite-Smith deck. For a long time it was just called the Rider-Waite deck but we should give it its full term because obviously there's no tarot deck without the images. So we'll put the Smith in there as well. This was the first deck to be used solely for divination so it was not used for playing games as well. And the minor arcana finally carried images to allow readers to perceive messages. So... What you had previously, if you looked at the Marseille deck, is if you were looking at, say, the Eight of Swords, it would just have eight swords, and you would need to know what that represented. And you do get quite a lot of modern decks still do the same thing, and it is beyond irritating. But with the pictures, all of a sudden, it was, oh, hang on, this picture now relates to what that particular card means. And it meant that people could then get messages from them. So as an example, if you get the Eight of Pentacles, it's often taken to mean that you're working consistently to master your craft, whatever that craft may be. So in one deck that I've got, the person's working at making lace, because obviously that's incredibly hard and requires quite a lot of practice to master it. And then in another deck, somebody's, I think, just like blacksmithing. And they're sort of creating things at a forge. So it doesn't matter what the craft is. It's just this idea of working consistently. But the picture reinforces the message, which makes them much easier to read. And obviously this is where you can then get these intuitive messages from these picture cards, which you couldn't get when it was just the pip cards. And this use of images to stimulate intuition is basically where the tarot cards now sit. And while specific images really do vary across decks, and in some cases even cards vary, because in one of my decks it's a druid deck, so it doesn't have the devil, because why would it? That's that's a Christian invention. So it it all depends on the deck that you're using. But these archetypes appear in the work of psychologist Carl Jung, and we now know them as the likes of the magician, the hero, or the sage. And according to Jung, we recognise these archetypes from a really young age because they help us to understand the world around us. And this psychological aspect of tarot is largely where the practice now sits. And Bridget Esselmont, who's the founder of the online tarot community Biddy Tarot, describes tarot as, and I quote, Perfect for self-development, making choices, manifesting goals, coaching others, planning a business, writing a book, meditating, you name it, end quote. Basically think of them as the 21st century agony ant. 
And as I say, I'm biased. I like reading tarot cards. I find they give a really useful set of perspectives if I'm stuck on something or I'm not sure. And not, not being funny, I even use them in my fiction. So if I'm not quite sure what to do with the character and the character just seems to have run down a blind alley, I might do a tarot card draw for them and then work it from there. I mean, why not? But at the, this is a, a folklore podcast, let's be honest. So let's have a little bit of the folklore about the cards. Because obviously, with something like this, and as I say, one of their names is the Devil's Picture Book, there is a degree of folklore gathered around them. And people who are unfamiliar with their meanings may literally gasp in horror to see cards like Death or the Hanged Man. But let me assure you now that no, the Death card does not mean you will literally die. It usually means a figurative death or an ending. So you might decide to give up smoking. So the death of you as a smoker is what it's pointing to, as in your identity as a smoker, not your literal death. You might change jobs, which is probably quite a nice change or transition, or you might just give up a hobby that you don't enjoy anymore. So you might stop going to the gym, for example. Obviously, the hangman, again, there's a lot of misconceptions about him, but again, he's not actually necessarily as bad as he looks. And many of the tarot superstitions can be dispelled because some people say that the tarot cards can't lie. Well, they can't, they're pieces of cardboard. And others say that they also can't predict the future. And I must admit, I don't think that they can because the future hasn't happened yet. That it depends on what we choose to do. It's, it, you don't want to be making a choice and going, oh, but the tarot cards made me do it. No, 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 take responsibility. Other people believe that you shouldn't buy tarot cards for yourself and that you should only be gifted a deck. Well, I've massively proved that one wrong. And also people think that you shouldn't let others do readings with your cards. And a linked superstition says that a tarot reader shouldn't let others even touch their cards. But at the same time, having somebody actually shuffle the cards, if the reading's for them, is quite an intrinsic part of a reading. So I'll let you figure out that particular paradox. Now, whether you use tarot cards for guidance around big life issues, or you put them in the same new age bucket as crystals and incense, one thing is clear. Tarot cards are far from the devil's picture book that people might have you believe they are. At best, the tarot lets readers tap into the collective unconscious for valuable insights and advice from the universe, and at worst, they're psychological prompts that help you see problems from different perspectives. Just pray you don't pull the tower card. That is the end of this episode. I hope that you found it helpful. If you have ever been squeamish about tarot cards, I hope that you aren't now. I mean, there's not really any reason to be. Some of the decks are gorgeous as well. They're absolute works of art. And I think anyone who's read tarot for any length of time will always have a card that they particularly like and they're always really pleased to see when they pop up. And it's always quite interesting finding out what those cards are for other people. And it's also really funny just seeing some of the decks that are available. I've got quite an array and I pick the deck based on basically what I'm looking for. It's a nice way of exploring alternative options and getting perspectives on them. But that's just me. So hopefully now you've got a better grasp of where they actually came from. And also just the fact that just because something was a game doesn't mean that it can't have other valuable applications as well. So in this case, people obviously use it not necessarily to predict the future, but to sort of get a better idea of what kind of outcomes they might expect from a particular course of action. My voice is really starting to go now, which is going to be fun because I've got to record another episode next as well. As you, as, as I record this, as I say, it's the 20th of February, but this one goes out on the 14th of March, which is actually my birthday. So happy birthday to me in advance. 
I will see you next week where we're going to have a look at different types of divination. So this is the kind of things where, you know, people might like release some animals and then watch to see which way they run because that'll then mean something. Or they might watch patterns of birds in the sky or things like that. Technically speaking, putting a groundhog outside and seeing what happens with its shadow, that's a form of divination and fortune telling. So, you know, we all do it whether we like it or not. So hopefully you'll stick around for next week's episode. And in the meantime, have a fabulous week and I will see you soon. Cheerio.